0: You've entered into a world unlike any other. The objects in front of you dance before your eyes. You begin to taste sounds. Colors and patterns begin to swirl around you. You start to perceive things that don't exist, but it's not unsettling. And you feel strangely at peace. You close your eyes and a whole inner world is revealed. Your visions intensify. Space and time lose their meaning, and your sense of self begins to melt away. You've become one with the world. You feel a bit scared, and then you start to just feel pure awe. This is what some people would describe as the psychedelic experience. Hi, my name's Mike Salazzo, and this is State of the Pod, where science meets society. A woman lies on a couch listening to some soothing music. She has just taken psilocybin, a potent psychedelic found naturally in a group of fungi commonly known as magic mushrooms. But she's not at a drug-fueled party of Laurel Canyon in the 60s. She's actually in a modern clinical trial at the Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center Behavioral Biology Research Building where scientists are currently investigating whether psilocybin is a viable treatment for depression. In their 2020 study, researchers found a total of 24 patients with long-term depression. Each patient was then given two doses of psilocybin two weeks apart. Then they are assessed at follow-up appointments to see whether their symptoms improve. The results were impressive. At the four-week mark, up to 71% of patients experienced a 50% reduction or more in depressive symptoms, and 54% of the patients were in remission, and their depression had been completely alleviated. This study is not alone. A whole new field devoted to psychedelic research is repeatedly finding that these drugs can treat a variety of mental illness. So let's take a trip to explore the mysterious world of psychedelics. The first question that needs to be addressed is what are psychedelics and how do they actually work? Psychedelics are a type of drug that belong to a class called hallucinogens. These hallucinogenic drugs are typically broken into a few categories, the two main categories being psychedelics and dissociatives. Psychedelics disrupt the interaction between the brain and chemicals within it, such as serotonin. Serotonin is known to have a role in affecting mood, sleep, hunger, and visual perception. The altered perception is what creates the effect of tripping. Psychedelic drugs include DMT, LSD, mescaline, and psilocybin, to name a few. Similar to psychedelics, Dissociatives also interact with the brain and disrupt chemical signaling. Unlike their hallucinogenic cousins, dissociatives interact with the glutamate system in the body. Glutamate is a chemical that affects pain perception, memory, and learning, as well as emotions. Some drugs that fall under this category include PCP, DXM, and ketamine. Most of the studies, however, surround research with the use of DMT, psilocybin, and ketamine. These drugs commonly cause changes in both the perception of your surroundings and your sense of self. While people have documented these subjective experiences for decades, we still have very few details to understand how psychedelics physically affect neurobiology. It's believed that psychedelics activate 5-HT receptors, also known as serotonin receptors in the brain. As I mentioned earlier, serotonin is an important neurotransmitter that is involved in all sorts of neural communication lines. It's especially well known in pop culture for its anti-anxiety and happiness boosting effects. The fact that psychedelics can impersonate serotonin and affect brain communication pathways helps to explain the strange experiences that their users report. But the effects of psychedelics are not necessarily only temporary. These drugs appear to be capable of changing one's mood and outlook on life as a whole, enhancing feelings of clarity, love, and even happiness. At least one study has speculated that such benefits of psychedelic treatment can last up to as much as four and a half years. Such powerful, long-lasting mental health benefits have led medical experts to see if psychedelics can help patients with mental illnesses and terminal diseases. A study in London showed differences between depression patients who were treated with psilocybin and a conventional antidepressant. The antidepressant caused them to show some improvement, but their brains still showed patterns of disordered thinking associated with depression. Psilocybin treatments showed improvements over the course of the study with increased neural activity, increased brain connectivity, and showed signs of a healthy brain that was able to handle a variety of different situations that occurred throughout the day. However, again, this study was short duration and small sample size. A takeaway is that psilocybin is especially helpful when used alongside a psychotherapist to guide the patient through their trip during this time of brain plasticity. This treatment showed promise for long-lasting effects, but again, more research is needed. Because of these drugs classification as Schedule 1, there is limited research on how the drugs affect the body long term. The drug got this classification as it was seen as a tool of the counterculture, which was against the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Because of this, these drug trials are only for people who have drug-resistant depression. MDMA, another type of psychedelic, has also been approved for emergency use as a PTSD treatment. However, there's more research being done in Europe because they don't have the same drug classification rules that we do here in the States. Despite the promising nature of this drug, there are still examples where people went through bad trips and experienced suicidal thoughts and or actions. However, the people going through these studies do have untreatable depression. We asked Amy Kusieski for her thoughts on the research surrounding psychedelics. She is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Statistics and Data Science and an associate professor of mathematics in the Radiology Department and Brain and Mind Research Institute at the Cornell Weill Medical Center. She specializes in the research of neurological disorders and has repeatedly published research on the effects of psychedelics on the brain. Kusieski focuses on understanding how psychedelics affect patterns of activation in the brain. In a study conducted by Robert Carhart Harris, people were given psilocybin and were then placed in an MRI to track the flow of blood through the brain. Here, it was shown that brain entropy increased under psychedelics, meaning it was harder to predict the patterns of brain activation under psychedelics the brain requires a certain amount of energy to transition between different states. This study showed that psychedelics can act as a catalyst for this change of state. Kusieski explains that psychedelics mostly affect a specific pattern of the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in the brain. Depression was reduced for up to three months after treatment with the drugs on the patients with treatment-resistant depression. While self-harm and suicide attempts unfortunately occurred in these treatment groups, this was also seen in the control groups. Neuroplasticity, which could allow for a change in a person's way of thinking, was also shown to increase after psychedelic use. This could be especially important as it would allow people with disordered thinking to alter their mindset after years of being in the same thought loops. Still, it's important to know how the drugs work to be able to develop treatments for different diseases. Due to the novelty of this study, however, trials were only conducted on treatment-resistant patients, and long-term side effects of the drugs are still unknown. Despite the recent hype around psychedelics, They've actually been used for years by indigenous cultures. The scientific research on them, however, only began in the late 1930s when Albert Hoffman became the first person to synthesize LSD. A few days later, Hoffman would ingest LSD and become the first person to go on an acid trip. And he continued to use it in small doses throughout the rest of his life. On his hundredth birthday, Albert Hoffman was quoted as saying, it gave me an inner joy, an open-mindedness, a gratefulness, open eyes and an internal sensitivity for the miracles of creation. Hoffman also influenced a number of other psychiatric researchers to carry on his work. In the 1950s and 60s, Humphrey Osmond and his colleagues tested LSD on alcoholic patients. And found that many of them quit drinking shortly after this trip. Researchers later expanded to investigate whether other mental conditions could be treated in the same way. 40,000 patients were tested, 1,000 patient papers were even published on LSD, and it was even given to kids with autism. By modern standards, many of these studies were extremely flawed. However, There was still a lot of promise in these drugs as a use for treatment. But LSD became widely available in the 1960s, quickly becoming associated with the counterculture revolution. This led to many mainstream Americans frowning upon the use of psychedelics. Despite the concerns of scientists, psychedelics such as LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA were banned between the late 60s and 80s. These drugs were and still are federally classified as Schedule I drugs, as I mentioned earlier. Legally, in order for a drug to be classified as Schedule I, it must meet the three following criteria. It must have a high potential for abuse. It must have no currently accepted medical use as a treatment in the United States. And it also must have a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. Psychedelics are Schedule I, despite the fact there are promising medical avenues for them, and the fact that these substances have substantially lower abuse rates than other Schedule I drugs. However, public sentiment appears to be shifting and changing in the favor of psychedelics. The state of Oregon, as well as Washington, DC, and numerous other localities have decriminalized production of psilocybin or even allowed for the opening of psilocybin treatment centers. On November 8th, 2022, Colorado passed Proposition 122. This proposition decriminalizes personal cultivation and use of psychedelics and allows for the opening of treatment facilities that supervise patients' psychedelic consumption. Roughly 30% of Americans support legalizing psychedelics for personal as well as medical use, with another 35 supporting them in only medical use. Believe it or not, despite the research surrounding them and the possible benefits, psychedelics are still not widely used with less than one-third of Americans ever having tried one. Reduced stigma around psychedelics will help usher in a new wave of research and treatments. Someone on the forefront of these research and treatments is Dr. Alex Kwan. Alex is an associate professor at the Manning School of Biomedical Engineering at Cornell University. He's also received his PhD in applied physics from Cornell. He is employing several new methodologies to study the impact of psychedelics in the brain of mice. His work was recently figured in the Cornell Chronicles. To tell you more, here's Alex. So you went to Cornell. What did you study when you were here?
1: I was a PhD student in the Applied Physics Department. Uh, I was here from, it's always a, a tricky part, when I mean, you go think about the dates. <laughs> I was here starting, I think, 2003. And uh, uh, initially, uh, I was a physics uh, major, but then eventually I started doing some biophysics. So I was building a lot of optical microscopes here. Mm-hmm. That really led my path eventually down to neuroscience because some of those microscopes that we built were quite useful for imaging the brain. And it's still, I would say, a mainstay in my lab right now, using those kinds of optical imaging methods to study brain function. Great. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you're researching right now? My lab, we're particularly interested in the basic science behind psychedelics. So what I mean by that is there are currently a lot of activities already in the clinical aspect of trying to test in humans to demonstrate the clinical efficacy for using these compounds to treat things like depression, substance use disorder. That's mostly done in the medical school and hospitals. There are also a lot of chemists that are trying to synthesize and generate new compounds. But I think there's a real gap in the middle where we don't really understand the neurobiology of these compounds in terms of how they affect the brain and brain activity. Uh, We clearly know that they have these very intriguing behavioral effects, both the short-term subjective effects, but also the uh, long-term, the effect that would be useful for psychiatry, but we just don't know exactly what they do to the brain to evoke those types of effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my lab, we're very interested in doing that. uh, And what we do is using some of these optical imaging techniques combined with electrical recordings of the brain, molecular methods, uh, to use animal models to try to understand microscopically how these compounds uh, affects brain structure and brain function. Mm -hmm. So I noticed from reading about your research that you're using a lot of new techniques Um, Could you tell us about some of those? How are you modernizing this field of research? Yeah, I think my lab, but also many other labs, are taking advantage of some of these modern techniques to study psychedelics and how they work. I think two of the techniques in particular that I'm quite excited about, one is optical microscopy. That actually has a long history in Cornell. Cornell has a lot of microscopy development, uh, particularly in the engineering departments here where we have developed some novel uh, imaging methods. Uh, So these kinds of methods allow us to image in a live mouse uh, microscopically neurons and their connections of even groups of neurons. And we can also image the activity patterns of these neurons uh, in a live mouse. So that's quite powerful if we want to understand uh, specifically groups of neurons that are affected by psychedelics, particularly types of brain cells, and also uh, how it affects how neurons communicate with each other. So we've been taking a a big advantage of that Uh, are numerous projects in the lab trying to look at how psychedelic affect brain circuits. And then the other method that we are quite excited about are large-scale electrophysiology. So what that means is the ability to record from thousands or tens of thousands of neurons at once. So this was not possible when, you know, the last wave of research was done on psychedelic, which is in the 60s and 70s, where people would be sticking an electrode and recording one neuron at a time. But now we have these microfabric, microfabricated probes, silicon probes, which allow us to measure thousands of neurons at once. So that really allows us to look at neurodynamics and, on the whole, how the patterns of firing uh, change in the brain uh, you know, before and after uh, the psychedelic administration. So I think these can give us a lot of insight because, ultimately, some of these neurowiring uh, and also neuroactivity is what underlies behavior, is what drives mm-hmm. our behavior. Uh, these things that's going on in our head. So if we want to understand how these compounds can exert these intriguing behavioral action, we really have to understand what's going on at the neuroactivity level. So do you think psychedelics should be easier to access, at least for researchers? I think there are a lot of potentials for these compounds in psychiatry. It could be quite transformative because right now the medication – Let's say you take SSRI, and the prime example that we use Prozac for treating depression, you need to take it every day. Um, so adherence is very difficult and also very slow onset, whereas psilocybin in some of the earlier clinical trials shows pretty rapid and enduring effect even just after one or two doses. So that's quite different and could be, bring a lot of benefit to people. So I do think more research are needed. And to be fair, I think the government is doing some of that. So, for example, they uh, over the last couple of years, they have incre- increased the quota for production of things like psilocybin for research purposes. Uh, so, But I think, yes, I think more research is warranted, and I think anything uh, towards the direction in terms of regulation or in terms of uh, uh, research funding, I think, would be
0: quite helpful.
2: Mm.
0: In most of the media coverage, they seem to only focus on the positives. So as you see it, what are some of the negatives that are being sort of overlooked? Because it seems like people are kind of touting mushrooms as like a new catch-all for uh, solving mental illness with people.
1: Yes, so i as I mentioned, there are some health-related issues with it that people should be aware of. That it's not suitable for everybody in the population, particularly mm-hmm. people with risk of schizophrenia or cardiac issues. But there are other issues as well that is starting to surface now. Uh, for example, psilocybin in the clinical setting is always done in the context of assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So the psilocybin is dosed in the presence of guardians of medical professional, and I believe training of those medical professionals is hugely important and trying to standardize what that uh, training and the certification of those uh, medical professional is important. Because uh, patients who want to benefit from this and they go in and we take these drugs and then their mind become quite susceptible uh, under the influence of the drugs. So we, we need ways way to make sure that uh, these medical professionals are indeed acting professionally Uh, Because there could be, uh, there's already been some uh, accusations of uh, inappropriate
0: behavior during the dosing sessions. Hmm. I know that this is a pretty new field of study. Has it been difficult trying to obtain, I don't even know if you need permits or anything like that in order to conduct this type of research? It's a rapidly evolving field.
1: Right now, psychedelics, including psilocybin or the other compounds that I've mentioned, they belong to Schedule One in, in mm-hmm. the controlled substances. So to work with them, you need a license uh, from the DEA and also a state license, a registration to, to store or possess or research these compounds. You have, to, you have to apply for them. And as you may know, there's a lot of effort now, even you know, yesterday uh, or two days ago in the midterm election, to various... Uh, propositions to try to decriminalize or legalize these compounds. So it's a really rapidly evolving landscape, but as of now, federally, you still need registration to research them, so Mm. they're they're still restricted. And that, I think, contributes partly to the mystique of these compounds, because for a long time, 20, 30 years, uh, since the beginning of the Controlled Substance Act, it has been very difficult to study these compounds, which is also why I think it's so fun to work with them now, because now neuroscience has progressed tremendously. We have all these new methods, imaging, optogenetics, and we can apply them now to study these drugs. And there's this gap of research for about 30 years or so. So what do you think we need to research in psychedelics going forward? What research would you like to see? I think the research can move in different directions. Uh, I think more clinical research needs to be done to see truly what indication it is good for. I don't think psychedelics are a panacea, so they're not gonna solve any, every problem, every health problem in the world, mm-hmm. but they seem to be portrayed that way right now in the media, so I think more rigorous and transparent clinical trials need to happen uh, to test to see if they're truly beneficial for certain disorders. Again, among those, I think the most hopeful in my mind right now are depression, substance use disorder, OCD, and cluster headache. I think there's decent evidence for those, and then I think there should be also more basic research done. Uh, so these would be the kind of research that's done in my lab, just to understand at a, fundamental, at a fundamental level what they do to brain circuits. I also see it bring value, my own research, in different ways. One is that by understanding what brain circuit and what brain pathway they target, we might be able to use those knowledge to identify some new drugs for d- drug discovery, uh, looking at compounds that would affect those same circuits. Uh, but perhaps not other ones that would be responsible for some of the side effects. And then another uh, way that that could be uh, useful is that, yeah, I, I maybe not so much useful, but I just I think it's fascinating. And you know these compounds are are have these tremendous behavioral effects, and I think as a basic neuroscientist, I'm also just quite interested in why, what are some of the neuro mechanisms? And I think by understanding how this drug works, it could also give some insight into uh, just consciousness and just our own perception and the basic mechanism for
0: those. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for your time. We also took the time to meet with Clara Liao. Clara is a fourth-year doctoral student here at Cornell and currently works in Dr. Kwan's lab. We interviewed her in order to gain further insight into Dr. Kwan's research as well as the day-to-day operations within their lab. To tell you more, here's Clara herself. Um, thank you again. I'm just going to say that now that we got the recording going. Sure, yeah. Thanks for taking the time out to uh, to come and do the interview with me.
2: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Okay. So how do you go about actually studying the mechanisms in which, uh, in which these drugs work?
2: So it's a lot of um, manipulation. So in terms of what we know now through prior studies and uh, the literature, we know that psilocybin acts um, mainly, well, not mainly, we know the most about psilocybin acting on the serotonin 2A receptor subtype. But psilocybin binds to a whole range of things. It's not just that molecule. Um, That's just the one that happened to be the most studied. And so we are trying to decipher the role of the 2A receptor in how the downstream um, signaling then proceeds. And also, is it just the 2A receptor or is it the other receptor subtypes that psilocybin also binds to? That's mm. important.
0: I see. Is there much research that is, uh, has been done into like what causes these uh, you know, trip effects on people? Or is that sort of what you guys are doing?
2: Well, so it's the most well-established thing we know about psilocybin, I would say, is that it definitely is mediated, the hallucinogenic effect is mediated by the 2A receptor. But much more than that, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. So we we know in humans that if you block the 2A receptor uh, with a drug and give them psilocybin or LSD, they won't have that trip. Um, but much more than that, it's kind of speculation or it's still an ongoing field of research for what that trip is really consisting of.
0: Okay, so what, how, in terms of research, how would you go about trying to decouple the hallucinogenic effect from just the rest of what the compound is doing?
2: Yeah, in terms of in rodents, what we use is, um, it's called the head twitch response. It's a measure of a hallucinogenic compound's um, hallucinogenic potency, and it's been used for years now. And it's essentially watching this uh, mouse with a super fast camera um, do this head twitch. And you can't see it with the naked eye, but when you slow down a video recording, it's like a, it's been described like a wet dog shake. And the more, and it's kind of the proxy for them undergoing a trip, because it only happens during an acute, during the acute time after a hallucinogenic drug administration, and it's directly, uh, it's directly correlated with uh, the, human, the human hallucinogenic effects. Mm. And so that using that behavior as a readout compared to other behaviors, once we have something more reliably established that is a measure of the therapeutic effect, you can see if you manipulate something and you abolish the head twitch response, but you keep the behavioral effect, that would show that they can be decoupled. But if you consistently find that they're always related to one another, that would suggest that they're both necessary.
0: Is there anything you think that the scientific community could do to make these research and uh, findings more palatable to try and help bring, bring the lay people in?
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of efforts to um, improve science outreach, to ha- improve overall science literacy in the public. So kind of meeting halfway, I think would be the ideal because there's so many, there's so many <laughs> senators that don't know what a protein is. And there's also so many scientists that don't know how to explain it well. And I think there's just a huge miss. Miss opportunity for great communication. So I think it kind of has to come from both sides. Um, but definitely, I think uh, scientists who are involved in science policy and trying to be more involved in the community and outreach efforts, I think that makes a, makes a big difference.
0: How do you think in the bigger picture these uh, drugs could and treatments could fit into the landscape of the pharmaceutical industry?
2: Yeah, so if Prozac worked for everybody, that would be great, but the reality of it is that it works for maybe only a third of people that need treatment, and so these people are even categorized as treatment-resistant patients, and they're trying to find relief in other alternatives. And so the, the most recent one being the FDA approved ketamine nasal spray for depressive uh, symptoms. And that seems to be pretty promising. Um, just basically something that is going to work for them. And even better would be if it's fast acting. Prozac is going to take weeks and something like ketamine seems to be um, much, much faster. And so that's what we're also hoping for whatever therapeutic application comes out of our research.
0: Overall, there's tons of promise that psychedelics can be used as effective treatments for mental illnesses. In a time where mental illness is increasingly prevalent, we could really use a medication which would both be long-lasting and powerful. Public perception is warming up to the idea of these drugs and scientific interest is increasing. Psychedelics are no longer exclusive to anti-war activists and hippies. More and more states are decriminalizing them, and we are learning ever more about how they work on the brain. We still have a long way to go, but in the end, maybe one trip could make all the difference.